Welcome to the Alex Kennedy Podcast, which is part of the BasketballNews.com podcast network. This is episode number 10. We post new episodes every Monday, so make sure you're subscribed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Today, I'm joined by a 12-year NBA veteran who averaged 9.1 points over the course of his career. After retiring, he became the Phoenix Suns assistant GM and later moved to coaching, taking over as head coach of the Chicago Bulls and LA Clippers. He has also served as the director of the NBA Draft Combine. Now he's part of our staff at BasketballNews.com, writing articles and appearing on our podcast. My guest is the great Vinny Del Negro. Vinny, thanks for joining me. How are you? Everything's well in this... uh incredible world we're living in right now but uh, hopefully you and your family are safe and everyone out there safe and and uh, being smart about this coronavirus and uh, hopefully we'll get through it together absolutely couldn't agree more I'm trying to stay safe things have been good I've been staying home as much as possible but uh, I want to talk to you because uh, I I feel like this is a really interesting time in the NBA we have a ton of coaching changes we're about to enter an offseason where we're going to have a draft free agency period and then training camps crammed into a week and a half period. So things are really interesting right now in the NBA. Let's start with some of these coaching changes. You made the transition from playing in the NBA to coaching in the NBA, and you didn't have any head coaching experience when the Chicago Bulls hired you. So there's been a lot of talk about what's in store for Steve Nash in Brooklyn. And I think, you know, more than most people, you can relate to kind of what he's going through and what that transition is like. What was that first season as a head coach like for you? Well, it's, it's, it's a bit of a world when there's no question about it. Um, you know, but, you know, I was fortunate to, uh, have played a long time, had some great coaches, um, a lot of really smart players and, and, uh, star players I played with. And, uh, you know, I've always considered myself like a student of the game, always looking at different angles and how to improve and looking at concepts and, um, and things that work and things that were comfortable uh, in my coaching. And I was very fortunate to have uh, gentlemen like, you know, Del Harris and Bernie Bickerstaff and Bobby Osipka, veteran coaches that had been around the league. So my staff was very important to me because of their experience. And uh, they all took on uh, different roles to kind of help me mature as a coach and uh, help me process uh, things as quick as possible and as intelligent as possible. And um, that was, I was very fortunate from that aspect. So, and then I think Steve is in the same situation. Steve, um, obviously Steve was an incredible player. Um, Pretty much uh, he was nonstop on the court. The thing that impressed me most, you know, I was in the front office in Phoenix when Steve was playing for the Suns. And what impressed me the most about Steve is, you know, his intellect, his intelligence, um, his athletic ability, what he got out of his game, his scoring ability, his passing, his vision. But but really the thing that I think separated Steve um, was his conditioning. And what I mean by that is Steve was a, a very, very uh, a good soccer player. And I grew up playing soccer as well, but Steve was a fantastic player. And I think the conditioning in soccer where you're continually moving and running, I think his conditioning um, was second to none because there's no way. What amazed me most about Steve is he could play at a consistently fast pace, but under control all the time. And what I mean by that is everyone wants to run and everyone wants to play fast and free. Um, and it sounds great, 
but it puts a lot of wear and tear in your body. Um, guys can do it uh, for stretches. Guys can do it for a game or two or several games in a row. But Steve was incredible because the system um, that he was playing in with Mike D'Antoni and how they wanted to play, uh, Steve was the complete catalyst of that with his ability to constantly push the tempo, constantly uh, make the game easier for everybody. Um, he never stopped. And that really impressed me the most. And I think Steve will take that into coaching in terms of um, he's, he's going to continually uh, put great people around him. You know, uh, Mike D'Antoni is on his staff, um, you know, who is a fantastic coach, uh, you know, fantastic person. And, and obviously Steve knows him as well as anybody um, with the success they had in Phoenix um, and the coach-player relationship. Jacques Vaughn, who's on his staff, um, obviously coached the team last year, knows the personality of the players, the strengths, the weaknesses, what works, what doesn't. And obviously the, the biggest thing is, is Steve's relationship with Kevin Durant from Golden State and now incorporating Kevin into um, the system that's going to fit them the best, how they're going to play, uh, feeding off obviously Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving's ability, but also having a structure that enables other players to benefit in the system. Uh, so Steve is going to be like a sponge. He'll absorb everything. He'll have a system in place. Um, he'll have a give and take with players um, on their strengths and weaknesses in terms of um, learning their personalities. And in this COVID situation and the things we're going through right now, um, you know, building those relationships, um, talking, getting uh, in front of the video and watching video and getting on the court with players and working with them and building those relationships and building that system and that culture he wants um, is going to take time and it's going to have to be as fluent as possible with what everyone's dealing with in the COVID structure right now. For sure. So because you were in Phoenix with him and D'Antoni, I mean, I'm curious then when you were around Nash, did you recognize certain qualities that he had or characteristics that you think would lend itself to coaching, whether it was his leadership or, you know, you mentioned his conditioning and just preparation. And actually, it's funny. I've talked to other players like Jared Dudley who have said that, you know, playing with Steve Nash changed his career because he focused on nutrition and his work ethic changed and he just had that effect on people around him. So when you were around him in Phoenix, did you see certain qualities that you think would make him a good head coach? Well, I just think his intelligence overall, I mean, his understanding of the game, the great players can see the next play unfolding, um, you know, as quick as anybody. And that's what makes him great. They can, and Steve had, you know, eyes behind his head. I mean, the way he could pass the ball, um, you know, Steve was a very unselfish player. His job and, and what he wanted to do was, was control the tempo of the game, get everybody involved, make the game easy. But then when he needed to, he could score the ball as well. He was an incredible free throw shooter. Um, so he knew time and score as well as anybody. He was a student of the game, a student uh, on the court, um, an extension of the coach. So I, I just think uh, his experience probably in Golden State being, you know, around that team, being around Kevin, um, you know, and building that relationship and being on the court and learning, you know, uh, you know, from Steve Kerr and his staff and things they were doing there. I'm sure there was a very – uh, comfortable structure Steve had in his mind. And then his relationship with Sean Marks, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the general manager and president of basketball uh, with the Nets, his relationship uh, with Sean obviously had a lot to do with this as well. So, um, 
you know, Steve will put his system in place and there'll be a huge learning curve like there is for everybody. Um, but he has a great staff around him and he has, a, I mean, two of the top players in the league and um, a, a team that has a very um, deep and um, strong talent level um, when you're going to add now a Kyrie Irving and a Kevin Durant. You know, that's one of the reasons I'm sure Stephen, you know, thought of this was because he has an opportunity to uh, have great success early on um, with, with the talent that's assembled in Brooklyn. For sure. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing, like you said, you know, hiring those assistant coaches that have that experience, I think that's just going to take a lot off his plate and, and really help him. Uh, but I guess a last thing on Steve Nash here, what advice would you give to him? Because you were in the same position and, you know, you, you made the transition without having that head coaching experience. I think he's already doing the right things, it sounds like. And I agree with you. I think hiring those assistants, it reminds me of when Steve Kerr hired, you know, Alvin Gentry, Ron Adams and surrounded himself with, you know, really smart, experienced people. But what advice would you give to Nash entering the season? Well, my advice would be is, is uh, obviously have your standards and, and your vision in place, but be flexible enough as you learn the players and learn your system. Uh, some things that you think might work um, might not be beneficial to everybody on the roster, uh, but Steve is smart and he has great staff around him. So he'll be able to make those adjustments, but I think he needs to be the one voice um, you know, and he will be, he's got great leadership skills. Um, and like I said, his staff is very experienced and, you know, Mike is, has been a fabulous coach in this league for a long time. So that relationship I think will be key for Steve, um, as well as Jacques, uh, who knows the players well. So, um, he surrounded himself with very quality people, quality coaches, um, that'll be a benefit. And, and, and Steve will, will listen to the players. They'll have a system in place that benefits them. And it'll be a, a learning curve. Um, as far as game management and moving through the process of that um, as the season goes on. And, you know, uh, with not a, <clears throat> with not, with not a normal season in place without a normal training camp, without normal schedule, without things that are going on because of the situation with COVID um, there's going to be some, some curveballs and some things they're going to have to adjust to on the fly, just like every other team. And um, you know, they're going to have to manage those responsibilities as well. You mentioned being in Phoenix. Uh, you obviously had front office experience uh, from your time with the Suns before you started coaching. How did your front office experience help you as you transitioned into coaching? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the knowledge you gain is obviously very important from all aspects of, of the basketball business. And, and having that experience from the front office, what, what everyone's going through in terms of scouts and the draft and general manager responsibilities and what ownership is looking for. But every situation is different. Every ownership group is different. Some owners are more involved than others. Um, so um, just, just having that overall experience, I think, was helpful um, in Chicago, but probably mostly in, in Los Angeles um, in terms of the, the free agent process and the draft and things we did there that I was in control of and, and ran. So um, that was helpful to have that. But at the end of the day, you know, um, Steve is, is fantastic. I mean, uh, I think very highly as a person, first and foremost, and Obviously, his playing uh, credentials speak for themselves, and I think uh, he's going to be fantastic. Uh, you know, with the quality of talent that he has around him, and the learning on on the fly a little bit. But Steve will be a sponge, and um, you know, I, I I think Steve is is more than qualified, um, especially with the staff he's put around him. 
So with this year's or this uh, offseason's draft free agency period and the start of training camps all crammed into a 12 day period, I'm curious to get your reaction to what that's going to be like from a front office standpoint. You know, you obviously worked in these front offices whenever you were you know, helping run the draft and signing free agents. So I know usually when I talk to executives, they've said that you kind of prepare for the draft and then shift over into free agency mode. The fact that this is all going to be in the same 12 day period, how tough is that going to be for front offices? Well, I, I think it's just going to be different. I think, you know, there's, you know, teams have a lot of scouts. Uh, they know the players talent level. If they're going to fit their roster, they know the personality, obviously uh, not having the draft combine um, is hurtful, but at that, you know, you know, because knowledge in, in putting players in different situations, see how they react, get to know them a little bit better in a personal interview, um, but the scouts are, are talking to their high school, college coaches. They're talking to um, friends. They're, they're, they're doing their background checks. They're um, obviously trying to look at the skill set and what fits their roster and what doesn't, um, you know, do we need more shooting? Do we need more rebounding? You know, do we need better defenders? What, you know, what are we looking for? And that really depends on the level of pick that you have, the higher the pick, obviously you want to get the most value you can out of any pick. Um, but you know, the lottery positions, you want players that can at least get in your rotation at some point um, and value that that pick. So, um, but these are uncharted waters because of the COVID situation. So um, a lot of things are obviously being done virtually and uh, on calls and Zooms and Skypes and whatever they can do. But knowledge is power, information is power. And, and scouts and front officers are looking as much as they can get going through it, watching a lot of film and going through that process as well. So um, a lot of intelligent guys and, and people in front offices around the league um, that are on top of this stuff. Um, it's not a perfect science. Every organization has made mistakes in the draft. Every organization has made mistakes in free agency. And, uh, you know, it's not from lack of effort, lack of knowledge, lack of, but these, some of these things are hard decisions. Um, and they don't always go your way. So you're trying to stay away from the big mistake. You're trying to add value. You're trying to add an asset to your, uh, to your organization, to your roster that can help the coach have, uh, have as much success as possible, depending on expectations, depending on the reality of the situation and what you're trying to build, whether it's a team that's uh, been consistently in the playoffs and you're looking for an extra piece, whether it's a young team and we're trying to build for the future, whether you have a high lottery pick and you're trying to find a, um, you know, a staple uh, to build around um, and or be a piece of one of the two or three top players on your roster in terms of talent. So there's a lot of things and a lot of decisions, you know, uh, you know, if you have different cap space, uh, you want to be more of a player in free agency um, and you don't feel strongly at the pick you have, do you want to move the pick and, and, and do some things that way. So a lot of different decisions that go into it, a lot of game planning, a lot of vision, a lot of preparation goes into it. Um, and like I said, it's not a perfect science, um, but there's a lot of very intelligent, very hardworking people um, that put a lot of time in to try to make the best educated decision as uh, the draft and free agents comes around. And this year, like you said, much different because of the lack of the draft combine, but also um, the, uh, the shortness of time to transition from the draft to free agency um, is, is much tighter this year. 
Yeah, I'm curious because there's no draft combine. Uh, you know, they did. I know they did some interviews, and you know, they, there was a virtual combine, but it's not the same. You were the director of the NBA draft combine last year, so you kind of understand the importance of that event and how it helps teams. Uh, so I'm curious because there was no in-person combine and there was only limited in-person workouts. How do you think that will affect teams and how they're evaluating these players? You know, could we see teams rely more on game film or the interview process? You know, what what kind of impact do you think that will have? Well, when I was in the front office, having to me, having the in-person interviews to me was the most important. Um, being around the player, um, understanding their personality, being able to have a conversation with them um, about their background, about their family, about their college coach, about their teammates, about what they like, didn't like, their, you know, their strengths, their weaknesses, all the things you have a discussion with. I think that was the most important thing. At that stage, you know, you've scouted certain players. You have guys on your radar um, that, you know, you prioritize the, the top guys on your radar and then some other guys that you've liked and you want to see them in a different environment. So um, all of those things matter, you know, um, but, you know, uh, staffs are very prepared. I mean, uh, they've, they've seen these players several times, but they wanted to see them in a different environment. Um, how can they react out of a timeout? Uh, you know, what are their, what are their actual skill sets? What do they do? Well, not just seeing them in a different environment, getting all of their, to me, the most important thing was the, the personal interview and also um, making sure their physicals were done properly and seeing if there was any red flags from a health perspective, whether it was their knees, their backs, you know, ankles, current, you know, past injuries. Um, have they had any issues in the past? Because, you know, you're investing in these individuals, to bring into your organization, it's your responsibility to make sure you um, there aren't any red flags and you're crossing off everything on your list to make sure you're putting a, a healthy person out there because the most important thing as a player is availability. As long obviously your talent is the most important, but being available um, and being able to play and be healthy and be a consistent um, producer on your roster. Um, it is very beneficial and it, it makes the team, the coaching staff, everyone in the organization that much stronger. One thing that, you know, is interesting to me, I, I feel like fans fe think they know a lot about coaching in the NBA. And you see that on Twitter a lot where, you know, fans want to critique coaches and, oh, they should do this and they should do that and they should change the rotation to this, but they don't have all the information. They don't know what's going on behind the scenes. When you kind of see the well, I guess what are some of the biggest misconceptions about coaching and what are some of the critiques that you see fans make that maybe they don't understand fully what's going on or they don't have all the information? You know, I guess when you see fan critiques, what's your reaction? Uh, I mean, it, there's a broad spectrum. You know, when I was coaching, I kind of stayed away from that um, as much as you can. You're, you're just too busy. You can't worry about those things. I mean, the fans are the most important thing. I mean, the players are number one, the organization, the culture, but the fans make the NBA. And uh, the way social media is now and, and all the things uh, that, that are available to fans, they want to feel a part of it. And they, they have their thoughts, their suggestions, their emotions, their frustrations, everything. Obviously, uh, you know, they, they, they don't have all the information. They don't know what's going on behind the scenes. They don't know um, situations with owner owners or front office people or players or injuries or sicknesses or different things. Uh, you know, they don't see the practices. They don't see the walkthroughs. They don't see all the preparation. They don't see, um, you know, things that you're dealing with throughout. But 
that's what makes it great. That's what makes the NBA fantastic. I mean, you get to play a game um, at the highest level, see the best athletes in the world. And what you're trying to do as a coach is build a structure, put your players in areas of strength, and obviously um, give players opportunities to improve their game individually to make the group stronger. Um, but you're always learning. You're always trying to be a better communicator as a coach, um, no matter how many years you've been doing it. And uh, that's a constant. The game changes. Uh, different rosters change. Uh, draft, uh, draft choices come in. Free agency. Um, you might bring in a certain player um, that changes the complexion or things. So it's a constant um, uh, learning curve for everyone involved. Uh, but and when you can – when you can be with a team for, for a long period of time, it gives you the opportunity to work through all of those things and be more consistent throughout. So, um, you know, fans are, you know, have their opinions. Are they right all the time? Of course not. Um, do coaches make all the right decisions all the time? Of course not. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you're, you're trying to win basketball games and trying to put your players in areas of strength and give them opportunities to grow as not only players, but as people in general. I've really enjoyed working with you at basketballnews.com and being able to pick your brain on a lot of these different topics. And, you know, when we start talking, I keep thinking about how much you can still help an organization, whether it is on a coaching staff or in a front office, uh, because you do have all this experience and this wealth of information. So I'm curious, you know, would you ever be interested in going back to the team side and either working in a front office or being a coach again? I've had a couple opportunities in, in, in far as the coaching thing and front office things, but um, maybe eventually I'll do that. Um, I've been very fortunate to be in basketball a long time in, in different aspects of the game, from playing to radio and TV to scouting to gem, assistant general manager, obviously to being a head coach. So I've seen all, all different aspects of it. And, um, you know, I miss teaching. I miss being on the court. Um, I, I miss seeing players develop, improve their game, improve their careers. Um, but um, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. And it has to be, for me at my stage, it has to be the right situation with the right people. And those are, that's hard to find. Um, but I enjoy all the different things I do in basketball, whether it's coaching clinics or doing the draft combine or doing different things in basketball that I really enjoy to give back because I've been so fortunate with, you know, not only playing, but having great coaches and great teammates and having all, all those memories and experiences in, in various capacities in, in over 30 years almost in, in the NBA. So um, it, it's, it's been fun. I still, you know, have a lot to give and want to give back. So if the right opportunity presents itself, I'll definitely take a hard look at it. But um, those are hard to find. For sure. One thing I found interesting when I talked to James Posey about this, you know, he was saying when he made the transition from playing to coaching, he was blown away by the amount of work that the coaches put in uh, the, you know, what everything that went into game planning, the amount of film study and, you know, the long hours. And just from everyone I've talked to, it sounds like coaching is exhausting. Did you have a similar kind of realization when you made the transition to a front office? Cause I'm sure that's the first time you kind of saw the coaches at work and saw everything behind the scenes, you know, from what you thought, I guess, coaching and, you know, being in a front office was as a player to what it actually was when you made the transition, what were some of the big things that surprised you? I think the thing that surprised me the most probably is, is as a player, um, I had the ability to uh, turn things on and off from, a, from one game to another game, whether I played well or played poorly, and I had a routine in place 
um, whether I played well a certain thing I wanted to do in practice or pregame. Um, I, I was very methodical. I had a, a very um, different preparation depending on where I was, you know, as far as playing my best. And But at, with coaching, when you win, it's kind of a relief. And when you lose, it's kind of a gut punch. And you, you're always trying to improve. So for me, coaching was much harder to turn off um, because I'm such I'm so competitive, and I, I want to you know help the players, help the organization, help the fans um, be successful. So turning that off uh, really wasn't uh, I wasn't really good at that. Um, so you know, but having a vision, having standards, having the ability to get on the court and work through things with players and staffs and personalities and work through those, through those things and then see uh, teams have some success um, from that uh, is very gratifying, but it's, it's more gratifying to see, uh, you know, players' faces, the fans, ownership, people involved when you have some type of success or see things you know, pulling in the right direction for an organization, that's very fulfilling. Um, but at the end of the day, it comes down to wins and losses. It comes down to, you know, is your team improving over time throughout the season? So I really managed uh, myself and my staff with those things, especially the teams I took over that were very young, needed a lot of time, needed a lot of development. Um, but as those players were able to develop, you can give them a little bit more to understand. You can put them in different situations. Um, and that's what you're looking to do because um, there's a lot that goes into it. But I think the hardest thing for me was I, I really was not good at turning anything off because I was so I'm so competitive in kind of everything I do, and uh, I, I want to do the right thing for players and for organizations and for fans. Yeah. So then I'm sure it kind of takes over your life, and you know that's kind of going back to what I was saying. Like the it feels like it's exhausting because there's always something to get that could be you know done. There's always more things on the to-do list. And that's why we see some of these coaches working so such long hours and, you know, sleeping at the facility and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like it almost seems like in, in today's NBA, if you want to be a coach, uh, you, you almost have to dedicate your whole life to it. And that yeah. seems like such a huge, I mean, there's not many jobs that ask that of you and say, hey, we're going to need you to drop everything and make all these sacrifices. And I mean, especially even just like with the travel and everything, you're away from your family and stuff so long. You know, how many, how many sacrifices are made when you're an NBA head coach? Oh, well, the most of it comes down on your, you know, your wife, your family, um, the time away. And even when you're here, being able to turn things off so you can be, you know, involved in all aspects of, of your family's life. So it's nonstop. But, you know, all coaches work hard. You know, I, I don't know any coach I've really ever met or been around that, that, that doesn't work, have some type of work ethic and work hard. But more importantly, it's more important to work smart and, you know, understanding your team and, and some things you can give certain players that they can understand and, and other players you can't give them quite as much because they can't process it as quick and you're now affecting them. Game is a Basketball is a game of reaction. And the more things you put in players' heads that they can't process quickly, it slows their feet down and the reaction is slower. So you always want to understand what works well and work, work, you know, what doesn't work. So everybody, but you might have two or three players that want more things to work with, but the other two or three are guys coming off the bench 
can't process those things quite as quickly. So you see a lot of teams now in the NBA, what do they do defensively? Everybody switches in the NBA. Everyone doesn't care if they post up guys because they want to go and shoot threes. They want to get corner threes. They want to get layups. They want to get free throws. Analytics are, are so ingrained now in pretty much all of professional sports, pretty much started in baseball um, for pitchers and all those things, but it's transcend now into all sports. And I think the analytics part is very important. Um, but the analytics don't always tell the story and having a balance between that, I think is very important where coaches learn how to use analytics to their benefit and analytics, people using and understanding the game from a coaching standpoint and a staff standpoint, how they can really benefit, um, the team, um, from, from injuries, from practice times to different, um, you know, uh, lineups that are helpful, um, different statistics overall that can be ingrained and, and can be occupied. Uh, on a, a rotation basis. So uh, I think there's there's a lot that goes into it, but um, I think you have to have <clears throat> your vision um, that suits the team the best, but also be flexible in the ability to make changes as you see fit. For sure. I, w- I want to end on this note. We've seen a number of coaching changes recently, so I want to get your thoughts on these coaches and how they fit with our new team. Let's start with Doc Rivers in Philadelphia. You know, when you look at Doc and what he's been able to do throughout his career, how do you feel like he fits with the Sixers and their personnel? Well, the Sixers are all about Embiid and Ben Simmons working together. So having a veteran coach um, is obviously, I think, going to be a benefit. I think uh, those guys... I think Doc will definitely have their ear and put them in positions of strength. Um, I think they can coexist together. Um, People have questioned that a little bit, but they're both incredibly talented, but different skill sets. So, um, but, you know, it's hard to find talent like those guys. So um, not only talent, but size and and different skill sets and abilities that are incredibly hard to find. So um, they'll put those guys in areas of strength and it'll be, it'll really be about, you know, what they build around those guys and the system and the structure that Doc and his staff put together for them. But, um, you know, experience um, will be helpful um, with that roster and what they're trying to do to get back to be, you know, being relevant at a high level in the Eastern Conference. And then Ty Lu takes over for Doc in mm-hmm. L.A. with the Clippers. How much of an advantage does Ty have because he was there last year and got to know the players and, you know, kind of saw how they were doing things before and kind of can now put his own imprint on the team. You know, what do you think Ty's going to do in LA? Well, he's been a head coach, you know, with Cleveland, he's had, you know, won a championship with LeBron and and that roster. So um, having familiarity of the players, the systems, the issues that the team had last year, um, you know, I always tell, you know, when I do coaches clinics and things, I say, you know, you're, you're, you, sometimes you're going to lose as a coach. That's just part of, of the competition. Um, but, but how you lose does matter. And the way the Clippers lost last year mattered. Um, how they looked on the court, um, how they competed uh, at the end of those games, how they gave up big leads consistently. And um, that's really what Ty Lue has got to figure out. I mean, that, that just can't happen. So, um, and he knows that. They have an incredibly talented roster. Um, you know, they have a, a committed ownership group, um, obviously, uh, you know, so uh, the resources are not the problem there. It's, it's how they're going to get everybody to mesh together in terms of to compete at a very high level. But when you have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and Lou Williams and the depth of that roster, um, 
high expectations for that organization, which there should be. And when you have high expectations and those aren't fulfilled, uh, you know, coaches get fired. That's just part of the business and, and part of the overall culture of the NBA. And then Stan Van Gundy is someone that I'm a big fan of. You know, I, I had him here in Orlando when he was coaching the Magic, and I just was so impressed with his basketball knowledge. And uh, I think he was fantastic here in Orlando, uh, you know, getting to cover him. And obviously, he has a great personality, too. The guy's really funny. And I'm going to miss him as a broadcaster. I will say that. But he obviously is taking over in New Orleans. You know, they're a team that's interesting to me because they have the young core. But then last year, they also brought in some veteran additions like Derek Favors and J.J. Redick. And they were really trying to win now. When you look at Stan and this Pelicans team, you know, what do you think of that roster and, and the fit there? Well, I'm also a fan of Stan's. I think he's a, a very good teacher. Um his teams are always well prepared. He does a nice job out of ATOs. He has great experience. His record speaks for himself. But I think, you know, New Orleans was looking for some type of leadership, some type of direction for that young nucleus of talent, obviously with Zion um, and things. So I'm a big Drew Holiday fan, um, as well as, you know, Brandon Ingram made great strides. So they have some very high level talented players, uh, young, committed um, so I think having some stability and I think New Orleans was looking for a veteran coach that um, was a very good teacher um, that could give them some, some type of stability, some type of direction, and really a person that can get on the court with those young players and help work with them, um, help them understand the game better, um, work on their skill sets, build a structure, build some standards in that organization that uh, the players can lean on. Um, to move forward in a positive way because the talent speaks for itself on the roster. And then Steven Silas is taking over in Houston. I'm curious to see with Daryl Morey gone, with Mike D'Antoni gone, you know, are they going to stick with the small ball approach or are we going to see them, you know, try to bring in a center and go with more of a traditional lineup? I'm curious to see kind of what adjustments are, are made there. Uh, Steven Silas has been talked about as an up and comer in the coaching world for a while. People have been really excited about you know, what he could do and obviously uh, is very respected around the NBA. What do you think of Silas and this Houston Rockets job? Well, see, like you said, it's going to depend on the, you know, are they going to go out and get some, some front court players in free agency? Or are they going to stay with small ball? When you have James Harden, he's, he needs to play a certain style. Um, you know, he can score as well as anybody in the league. We know that. And Russell Westbrook needs to play an open style as well with his ability and his great athleticism get to the rim and create havoc. So um, style for them is going to be very important, but how they structure their roster around their two superstars like that will be key, and we'll have to wait and see. Um, if, if they're going to try to slow Temple down just a little bit, if they're going to speed Temple up, if they're going to play the same way, how are they going to play um, that benefits, uh, you know, James and, and Russell, um, because you're only going to go as far as the system in place for those two guys. And then last one for you, Tom Thibodeau in New York. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this one. You know, Tibbs is someone that, you know, we've heard a lot of talk over the years about how he plays his veterans a lot and the minutes are, you know, very high for, for a lot of his guys. Uh, you know, but I think also he has been able to develop some young players. Uh, what do you think about the fit in New York? Obviously, that roster right now, it's very up in the air. It really depends on you know, player options, team options. We don't really know what they're going to do in free agency. They have a ton of cap space. But what do you think about Tibbs in New York? Well, you know, I know I've known Tom a long time. He was my assistant coach when I played for the Spurs in 1992. 
So we go way back. Tom is an excellent teacher. Um, you know, he's he's been around the game in different aspects for for 30 plus years. Um, uh, so, but, you know, coaches are only as good as their talent. You know, Tibbs will go in there and give them some direction, but really what talent they give him to work with is going to be the key to their success, like any coach in the league. Um, and they obviously have had some issues over the years to try to um, be consistent in that department and what direction they want to go with different coaches and front office people and things. So um, if they get some consistency there, if they get some, uh, you know, talent and free agency and draft picks that uh, Tibbs can work with and develop and add to their system, um, you'll, you'll probably see consistent success, um, which is what you're always looking for. So time will tell how all that's going to play out, but high expectations in New York, they haven't had nearly the success that they would like, but they haven't had nearly the consistency um, in front office uh, in, uh, on the sidelines uh, for a number of years. And we'll see how New York plays out because we know that's a very difficult uh, position um, just from, you know, being in New York and, and not having uh, successful teams for several years is, is tough uh, for the city, but Tibbs will bring an aspect there of um, coaching. He'll bring an aspect there of hardworking and competing. And, you know, it'll come down to the talent that they can assemble for him to work with. Oh, I got one more for you. Billy Donovan in Chicago. I think OKC did really well this year. People were kind of surprised because they traded away so many of their veteran key players for draft picks, and yet they were still able to make the playoffs. But, uh, you know, what do you, what do you think of Billy Donovan and the fit in Chicago? Well, I'm a fan of Billy. Um, he's a great guy. He's done a fantastic job transitioning from college to the pros. He was very fortunate, obviously, to go to Oklahoma City when they had Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and those dynamic teams that were a 50-plus win team plus and high expectations. And But changes were made there when Durant left and then obviously when Russell left and things. But I think Billy did a fantastic job, especially the last two years with all the roster changes and the things he had to deal with. But um, it was time for him to move on, apparently. But in Chicago, they have new front office people, uh, new basketball uh, administration uh, people, so a new direction there. They're still trying to accumulate talent, trying to accumulate a direction. I think really brings them some type of stability for sure. And now it'll be, you know, um, what are they going to do with Zach Levine? What talent level, uh, you know, in the draft and free agency, how committed they are um, to building around certain players, developing their young players. And that's going to take some time. Um, when you look at some of the teams in the Eastern Conference that have young nucleus of talent that are going to stay together whether it's the Milwaukee's or the Toronto's or the Boston's or the Philadelphia's um, we could go on and on. And we know how well coached and how good of a nucleus Miami has as well with their great performance this year, getting to the final. So the Eastern conference is not as easy as people think. Um, the Western conference obviously is very dominant, but Eastern conference has a lot of young nucleus of talent, um, a lot of high level coaches. So it's only going to improve. So, uh, you know, Chicago, will have to do a good job. A lot of the lower echelon teams in the Eastern Conference will have to do a good job being smart about the direction and the vision that they're going to have moving forward to have not only success, but consistent success with their young nucleuses. For sure. Well, Vinny, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. That was fantastic stuff. And I've really enjoyed working with you at basketballnews.com. I think you have such great insight and it's been awesome being able to pick your brain. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. No problem, Alex. Good to talk to you. 
Everyone, make sure you follow Vinny on Twitter at Vinny D Hoops and make sure you check out his great articles at basketballnews.com. He's been crushing it. If you want to hear more episodes of this podcast, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere your favorite podcasts are found. And until next time, thanks for listening. Today's episode is sponsored by greensupply.com. With everything going on in the world, it's more important than ever to stay safe. At greensupply.com, you can purchase masks, hand sanitizer, and other important health and wellness products, which are all in stock with same-day shipping. Best of all, listeners get 10% off their order when you use the promo code ALEX at checkout. That's A-L-E-X for 10% off your order. They have KN95 masks, cloth masks, hand sanitizer, and other supplies like forehead thermometers and UV boxes. Visit greensupply.com today. That's greensupply.com.